0: This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre.
1: It is now my great pleasure to introduce you to our first uh, keynote speaker this morning. Professor Keith McNeil uh, is the Assistant Deputy Director-General and Chief Clinical Information Officer, Queensland Health. He plays a key role in the clinical leadership of the statewide e-health program and works closely with key stakeholders to maximise the clinical and patient safety benefits associated with technology in the healthcare setting while minimising risk. Now, Professor McNeil's title of his keynote address this morning is Reshaping Healthcare and Harnessing the Potential, and I asked him, Of what? (laughs) And he's left that with a question mark of information, I think. So please, would you welcome Professor Keith McNeil? And there will be time for questions at the end of his keynote. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Well, thanks very much. And look, it's uh, fantastic to be here to talk to you about this, something I'm very passionate about. I've just spent five years in the UK uh, uh, originally as the CEO of uh, Cambridge University Hospital, uh, but more latterly and more salient to this uh, audience as a CCIO for the NHS uh, and head of IT for the NHS. And I'm going to talk to you about today about information. Uh, and I think the thing that, L- that Lynn was saying, the thing that binds us and the opportunity we have to bring together all these, all these agendas is information, as I'll show you. Um, I really enjoyed Tina's welcome to country, and I'm reminded, I've only been back here for four months, but everywhere I go around Queensland, I'm reminded in healthcare, when we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, that we also need to take a step back to remind ourselves of the very extant challenges we have in Indigenous health and the big differences in outcomes Mm -hmm. there are between our Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations. Um, We're struggling in healthcare in a lot of ways to, to deliver Uh, Reduce variation, and that is one of the most extant examples of variation that I've seen in the time I've been back here. So, I'm going to talk to you about information, uh, and I'm actually going to talk to you about digital transformation and how that all comes together because this is with us now. It's right here and right now. Uh, Now, it's traditional, of course, protocol that I declare any interests. I'm always reminded of the first time Oscar Wilde went through US customs and they asked him. Did he have anything to declare? And he said, I have nothing to declare other than my genius. Um, I can personally report that I have nothing to declare. So digital transformation of healthcare, fact, fiction, religion or all three. Uh, so all of this started, our journey into this whole area started back, way back there in 1987, oh, 1897. That's a plaque on the wall of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Uh, signifying where JJ Thompson discovered the electron, which was the first fundamental particle of physics, and of course, is the reason we're able to do everything digital and electronic today. And in fact, if you go across to that young, uh, fresh-faced on the the right-hand side of the slide, uh, that's Tim Berners-Lee, who some 30-odd years ago conceived uh, the internet, which was an example of us being able to buzz electrons all around the world and share information. Um, interestingly, and as a, as a slight aside, when Tim first put his proposition into his supervisor Mike Sindel, it came back with a little writing on the bottom, vague but exciting, and that was the permission he had to proceed with developing the internet. And of course, 10 years later, the first public message came through. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because a, a whole generation of healthcare workers coming through now, and, and, exact, and in fact, in fact working, and many of you in the audience, have never known a world without the internet, without being able to share information seamlessly in so many ways. And many of us have had to learn uh, what the implications of that are. And of course that's led us to the here and now where technology and, and digital transformation has pervaded our lives. Many of you will have booked travel on, uh, on the internet or ordered an Uber or a taxi or booked your hotel. Uh, in fact, it's everywhere, it's in banking, etc. But in fact, in healthcare, we've lagged behind them. We haven't really grasped the digital nettle, so to speak, uh, and we're still very much reliant on technology like fax machines. Now, there's always a silver lining, isn't there, because fax transmission is actually quite secure. But uh, it is time that we can sign this to, to the ancient history museums where they belong. So. Let me ground this to say, however, this isn't about technology. Technology is simply an enabler. This is about us producing, delivering better patient outcomes. So let's make sure that quite clear and I'll, I'll touch on that repeatedly as we go through the talk. So currently across the world, we're all struggling, doesn't matter which healthcare system you're talking about, with uh, the sustainability affordability. Uh, issues. So we all know that in fact in Queensland I can tell you that if healthcare expenditure continues on the current trajectory that by 2035 the entire tax revenue of the state will be taken up providing health care and clearly that's not sustainable without significant increases in tax revenue or in fact delivering our health care in a very different way. Now what's driving all this is in fact a good news story, because everywhere you go in any jurisdiction you will see graphs like this, which shows life expectancy improving significantly. So the NHS, where I've just come from, is 70 years old this year in July, which is fantastic and we all know the wonderful things the NHS has brought to us in terms of legacy. Uh, when the NHS was conceived in 1948, when it was started, the average life expectancy of a male was 63 years, just over 63 years. Now it's over 83 years. And similar story all around the world, which is a good news story. And, and, and as Peter right, rightly said, this is, this is about vaccines, it's about public health, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, But there's a sting in the tail there because of course, as we get older, we accumulate more comorbidity and we cost more to look after. We deserve more care as we get older because of the complexity of our illnesses. And that's what many societies are struggling with, how we do that. So I know that an 85-year-old with a complex set of conditions costs three times as much as a 65-year-old to look after when you look across the longitudinal aspects of that health journey. So we have to figure out how are we going to, how are we going to approach and, and uh, accommodate that demand. And, of course, when you throw in the lifestyle-related diseases of the 21st century, you know, obesity is a major problem for us. And it's hitting the young, it's hitting kids, it's hitting adolescents as well as adults. And, of course, all the things that flow from that with cancer, with vascular disease, with diabetes, with renal disease, dementia, etc., 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 add to that burden of, uh, of the healthcare systems. And healthcare systems, as I'll show you, weren't really designed to deal with this. So, within this context, we've set us the lofty goal of delivering what's called the triple aim, better clinical outcomes with a better patient experience and affordable health care. If you like, that's my simple paradigm for saying that's how we provide value to the taxpayer, by achieving uh, those aims. But it's not a simple thing to do because, as I said, our healthcare systems are very traditional. They're based on acute episodic disease models, not chronic comorbid longitudinal disease models. So we've got challenges to shift away from that way of thinking, get out of acute hospitals, back to community, back to homes, etc. Cetera, et cetera. We've got to, in a, in a really tangible way, engage and empower patients, carers and citizens in healthcare health literacy, we've got to improve that. And we know that when we do, outcomes are better and costs go down. And we've got to embrace disease prevention, which means getting away from the old descriptive analytics that happened a year ago into what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month, the so-called predictive and prescriptive analytics. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So the challenge is to disrupt the way we think, to do something different. Uh, The difficulty of course is that we don't know whether it'll work or not. And so there's a critical need for evidence and for data and information to inform that evidence so that we can make changes in real time, be flexible and agile. So I'm gonna talk to you a bit about disruption, I'm gonna talk to you about some systems theory and then uh, bring it together with the information and digital agenda. So disruption, of course, provokes adaptation and change. It's happened throughout human history, in fact, throughout the history of the Earth. And in fact, for systems like health to change, they need big disruptions. Otherwise, they'll change on glacial evolutionary timescales. And we haven't got time to do that. 2035 for Queensland's not that far off. Um, sometimes in, uh, disruptions can be enforced. You know, meteorites hit or. Uh, 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 HIV arise or Alzheimer's disease, etc., Or that can be serendipitous. The discovery of penicillin changed all of our lives, of course, or targeted where we see something and we want to make a big change. So coronary intervention, coronary stenting obviated the need to saw people's chests open and do coronary bypass in many cases, a fantastic disruption. And here's another one, x-rays discovered serendipitously back in the late 1800s, of course, changed the way we practise medicine. So good things like that. Well, what's the disruptor we're going to need in healthcare? Because, as I say, there is little evidence. So a real need for us to accumulate data to enable us to make decisions, evaluate changes in real time or close to real time, and then have an agile response. Healthcare systems don't respond in an agile way. They respond at the speed of government, which is no longer fit for purpose in terms of the digital age, or in fact, to deal with the challenges that we have. Uh, Because sometimes we need to stop things, and we don't need to stop them after we've done two years of assessments and pilots and evaluation. We need to stop them tomorrow when we know they don't work, and we need to spread the good learnings. Now, there's an established business paradigm that's been around for many years, which says if you want something fast and good, it won't be cheap, if you want something cheap and good, it won't be fast, and if you want something fast and cheap, it won't be good. Uh, that doesn't work for healthcare because, in fact, the triple aim is provoking us to deliver good, fast and cheap. So we are, we are disrupting very established, very entrenched business paradigms in the way that we are going to have to provide healthcare uh, into the future. And we do this in a world of what I call competing logic. So, as I sit in the middle of this trying to deliver the triple aim, whether I'm a CEO or a clinician or now in the role that I have, I've got to juggle all of these things. I've got to juggle the expectation of clinicians that they can do to the nth degree everything they need to, to for a patient, give them the latest and the best and the most expensive treatment available versus what the politicians expect or what my corporate masters expect, which is I've got to balance the budget. Uh, And the public, of course, have an expectation of what they want from their health care. We've got to juggle all that to deliver that value. And it's not an easy juggle sometimes. And this is really the challenge that we face day to day. uh, And I'm going to talk to you about how information plays into this so acutely. So that's Cambridge University Hospital sitting in the middle of the Cambridgeshire countryside. 67 Nobel Prize winners, 47 in health and science, and 15 working on that campus uh, at this particular day. A fantastic construct that brings in 14 billion pounds a year through the biotech industry. I had an 800 million pound budget that I had to spread across all the patients Uh, And I had to to balance that with the needs of the individual clinicians who who were looking after people with very complex, rare diseases on occasions that cost a lot more than the government was willing to pay. How do you get that challenge right between spreading across the, the whole system versus what needs to happen at that individual level? That's the challenge we face every day in healthcare, the utility equity argument lit large. How do you get that right? Well, guess what? Uh, We need to think differently about how we set systems up. Linear thinking is no longer fit for purpose in the 21st century, uh, but there is another paradigm. And data and information, which we haven't been able to access to the way we can today in the past, but data and information are critical to this agenda. Um, and the universe actually has the answer. So if we go back to physics 101, we know that there is an ongoing difficulty for physicists, very bright people like Einstein and Stephen Hawking, uh, God rest his soul, recently deceased. Um, conventional physics told us that, about gravity and about how galaxies and planets and stars move around. Uh, Niels Bohr and Werner Heisinger told us all about quantum mechanics right down at the fundamental particle level. But they can't. They're arguing about how the two. How does the big system cope with what has to happen at a very individual level every day? Um, now, if the universe hadn't got that paradigm right, then we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. So, 13.8 billion years to figure out how to do it. And guess what? The reason that they do it is uh, is through information. So, how do we know in the big system? How do I know at Cambridge University Hospitals spread across the whole system that what I do is going to be right for what happens each and every time a clinician sits down with a patient. So the solutions are complex adaptive systems, chaotic systems, fundamental elements uh, interacting effectively, uh, and all of those systems are information dependent. Flow and exchange of information is critical. And guess what? Healthcare is exactly the same. Healthcare is a fundamentally it is Mechanically, it is mathematically a complex system. This is what it looks like. It's not linear. It's all interdependent. It relies on itself. Every time you change something in one, on, on the left hand, something happens on the right hand in an unintended or an intended way. And we have to recognise that. Now, the NHS looks like this. Uh, so I thought I'd bring some international flavour for you. That's a diagram the King's Fund did. Uh, and guess what? down there is where healthcare is provided. So no wonder the NHS is struggling to cope with the demands. Uh, They have put together a system, a top-down hierarchical command and control system that's trying to command and control a very complex system and it's not working. And you only have to read the health service journal or the paper every day to know the struggles the NHS is going through right here and right now. When we have information we bring order to chaos, we can understand it. And randomness is only random because we don't have the right information and data to understand the patterns. Um, I'm reminded actually of of a particular heart rhythm called ventricular fibrillation, which is what happens when people have a heart attack and they they go into cardiac arrest. Uh, So the heart can stop and you get a flat line, or before that you get this sort of what looks like a chaotic tracing on an ECG monitor. Now, we thought that was completely random and and undecipherable. We can now analyse the electrical vectors in an ECG tracing down to one one one-hundredth of a microsecond. One one one-hundredth of a microsecond. That's what technology enables us to do. And when we apply machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence, if you like, uh, to look at those patterns, we can understand that randomness. That is just an example of where you have the right data and information You can understand what we see as complex and chaotic. Yep, so that's all about data and information. Now, there's a very very um, fundamental uh, theory in quantum mechanics which says that if you break down any complex system to its most fundamental level where you can't break it down anymore, the interactions between those fundamental elements have to occur effectively each and every time. Otherwise, the system breaks down. So if those interactions at a fundamental level don't happen, the system breaks down. And in fact, nature's designed systems to enable those interactions to occur each and every time. And in healthcare, the fundamental interaction is the sitting down between a patient and a clinician, exchanging information, just as in quantum mechanics. And if we don't design our systems, to enable those interactions to occur effectively each and every time, the system won't work. Because those interactions are where quality, safety and clinical outcomes are determined. Those interactions are where patient experience is determined. And those interactions are where cost is determined. So we need to design systems to enable those interactions to occur effectively. Now in the NHS there are one million of those interactions every 36 hours across the system. Imagine if you could make each and one of those 1% more productive, more efficient, more effective. The whole NHS problem with finance would go away overnight, and yet the system is stopping that from happening. So we need to recognise healthcare as complex and we need to set the system up to enable that to to happen. So what does our system look like now? Well, it looks like this. It's very hierarchical, it's top-down, it's command and control. Yep. And it doesn't work. It does not work in a complex environment. Um, Here's an example. So here's the Challenger space uh, shuttle which tragically blew up uh, because of a fault in the the uh, O-rings all those years ago. Um, if you look at the organogram for NASA, you can see it's a very at that time it was very traditional, very hierarchical decision making, and that's where the rocket scientists sat. Right down at the bottom of the chain, yep. long way before anything they said could get up to the top to the decision makers. Uh, and in fact, if you compare that to the NHS, it's not particularly different. So, you know, the NHS is going through its own Challenger disaster now. We've got to think differently. And I can tell you, if I was going to the moon in a rocket, I'd want that rocket ship to be designed and run by rocket scientists, not by politicians, bureaucrats and accountants. Thanks very much. And if I was a patient walking in the front door of a hospital, I'd want my health service designed by people who knew something about healthcare, not by politicians, bureaucrats and accountants. Thanks very much. So let's rethink about how we design healthcare systems to, to do what we need them to do, which is provide that really good healthcare at the point of healthcare delivery. This is 19th century thinking. It's industrial revolution, it's all about control. The NHS is famous for saying the whole problem is that hospitals don't have a grip on, on their work, so they put in more rules, regulations, uh, policies, procedures, etc., etc. and all it does is, uh, like the frog there, is it strangles the system, stops it from doing what it needs to do When you have a lever in in a system like that, one fulcrum, one lever, it moves one thing. But in fact, in complex systems, it causes a cascade of unintended consequences and a whole lot of other decision-making points. Now, at each of those decision-making points, if you provide the right information, then people on the ground, somewhere out there in the organisation, can actually make better decisions. And they can stop those cascades at that point. And that's what we call organisational resilience. And we need to embed that in the way we set up our systems. That is about engagement and empowerment of people on the front line to be able to make effective decisions. And that is critically dependent on them having the right information available to make those decisions. So when we look at risk paradigms, uh, airlines are ultra safe. They're much, much safer than walking in the front door of a hospital if you're a patient. Highly reliable if you're on the oil and gas rig, despite the issues that we see occasionally around the world. But for healthcare, it's unpredictable. We deal every day with ambiguity, with relative risk, and we need to set systems up, which is the resilience thing, to be able to cope with that ambiguity and with that relative risk. Not something that that corporate hierarchies deal with very well at all. So leadership is going to be critical here, clinical leadership in particular, but leadership right across the system in having the courage to enable systems to act as they should allow systems to self-organise, allow systems to build resilience within their organisation, which means engaging, encouraging and empowering people at the front line. Less reliance on central contracts and central enforcement. And in fact, those companies like Google, Airbnb, you you know them all, the platform models, they've done exactly that. And guess what? I mean, They're kicking goals on the stock market every day. And why wouldn't we do that? In fact, the archetypal example of that is the visa. Organisation, the Visa card, many of, I presume most of us will have one of those in our pockets right now. Three trillion US dollars a year turnover, 20% year on year growth during the global economic crisis, doesn't have traditional hierarchies, set up as a complex adaptive model, and is very successful at it. Uh, So, why would we not borrow from that? And in fact, if you look at the way uh, these organisations do things, They create value and improve customer experience by defining who does what best, regardless of where they sit in the organisation, uh, and engage in empowering them to do the right thing. And they see the cost benefits flow as a result. So if you look at the Harvard Business Review, you will see articles like this which show the transition now through the 21st century of power dynamics in corporations going from the traditional leader-driven, top-down driven, to the much more distributive peer, peer sort of uh, uh, paradigms that I've been talking about. This is happening now in our daily lives, and we've resisted it in healthcare care uh, up to this point in time, uh, but now we have an opportunity to change this. And by collecting, aggregating, and analysing data, uh, these organisations have a better understanding of of their clients' needs, and reciprocally, they can deliver better services. So why wouldn't we set healthcare up to do the same thing so that reciprocally, we can deliver better care and better services to our patients? So we need to reimagine. Lynn used the word reimagining, and it's on the the conference uh, uh, heading reimagine, I'll tell you where that word came from in a minute, but we need to reimagine how we think about healthcare and what to do. Paradigm shift. We need to change our thinking 180 degrees away, and this is what Einstein did when he came up with that little equation, uh, when he postulated, well, what the hell does it mean if the speed of light is constant in a vacuum? And in fact, most of what we do today in technology wouldn't exist without that little equation. That simply required a paradigm shift. Ask the right question. So leadership in the digital age is going to be critical because we've got to be innovative. We've got to do something different. And we've got to engage and empower people, as I say, and I keep coming back to this, engage and empower people who actually deliver healthcare, who actually look after patients, who actually are out there doing the hard yards. Create the right environment. This is the most expensive thing we have in our system today. A doctor with a pen. Yep, that pen determines just about everything, depends when people get admitted, when they get discharged, when they have an operation, what operation they have, what medicines they get, what medicines they don't have, when they, uh, uh, et etc. etc. all their investigations. That's where cost is determined, the stroke of those pens or now, increasingly, what they do on a digital keyboard. We have to engage the people who are using those pens and those keyboards to do the right thing, to make the right decisions each and every time they go and put their fingers uh, on that keyboard. And we've got to be innovative and have the courage to fail. Innovation is not about getting things right every time, it's about trying things and stopping them if they don't work and doing something different. And as Einstein famously said, otherwise we're just dumbing ourselves down and we might as well just use spinal reflexes to do it. Yeah? So the digital health agenda. Digital health, the transformation that we're going through is absolutely critical to delivering the triple aim. And the effective information flow is critical, as is data and information that we need to aggregate and get to the right place. And that's what's going to underpin the delivery of tomorrow's medicine and, in fact, to, to take a, a leaf out of the conference headline, bring tomorrow today. How do we deliver tomorrow's medicine today? Well, life is all about information. I've sort of touched on this already. The Big Bang was just information spread across the universe. It just gave a blueprint as to how the universe should form, and fundamentally all the interactions of all those molecules that went out there, all those atoms, is about information sharing. We're all here because of the information coded in our DNA, and genomics has already been mentioned. You know, it holds a lot of promise for the future. Uh, And patient outcomes, as I'll come back to, critically dependent on information. So if you go back in the history of time, Uh, You know, this is something I found on the internet. I tell people it's from Mesopotamia, but I've got no idea where it's from. But it does encapsulate the essence of clinical medicine, which is a patient and a clinician sitting down, exchanging information, talking, asking questions, exchanging information. That is the basis of how we practise medicine today. And in fact, luminaries like these people, William Osler in particular, made an art form of meticulously gathering the data, analysing it, seeing patterns. So the first person who turned up with crushing central chest pain, radiating to their jaw and their left arm, the person didn't know they were having a heart attack. But when the hundredth person did, they'd seen the patterns, they knew exactly what was going on. So we recognise those patterns today because people like these guys have aggregated and analysed data and seen patterns. This chap, William Farr, you probably won't know, but he's the father of birth, deaths and marriage registries and used to meticulously record everything. Uh, in the UK, all recorded by hand, um, and did a fantastic job. Uh, in the cholera epidemic of 1852, he meticulously recorded all the cases of cholera in London, uh, and he looked at the, the pattern and he thought, well, the further you go away from the Thames, uh, the, more co- the less cholera you see, and the air smells nicer there, so it must be uh, airborne. But it wasn't until this chap, John Snow, came along and reanalyzed the data that they found the Broad Street pump and the dirty nappy in the bottom of it and figured out that was where the cholera was coming from. William Farr applied heuristics, i.e. took shortcuts in in the way he thought about, which is what we do every day, whereas John Snow applied proper analysis. So data and analysis go together hand in hand. You can't have one without the other because we've got an enormous amount of data uh, we've got dumps and dumps of it, but it looks like that. It's all in bits all over the place. It's unstructured. It's unstandardised. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't connect. And to, to find anything in it, you've got to go burrowing away, and it's, it's a nightmare. Uh, we have to do better. It's said that data is the new crude oil. It's very valuable, like crude oil, you can trade it on the stock market. You can't do anything with crude oil until you refine it, uh, just the same as you can't do anything with data until you analyse it and endow it with some relevance and purpose. So let me tell you a little bit about data. More data has been generated in the past two years than the entirety of human history. People on the street can handle three complex thought processes at any one time. Uh, Intelligent person, five, a genius can handle seven. I'm talking complex stuff. And in healthcare, we're dealing now with hundreds of complex data inputs. We can't cognitively do that as human beings. We need technology, we need the, the information agenda, the technology revolution to help us cope with all that. And as an example, 100,000 genomes, uh, so the 100,000 Genome Project, whole genome sequences in the UK, uh, is going to generate 21 petabytes of data to store so that we can analyse it. So, what the hell's a petabyte, you say? Um, well, if you pick up your MP3 player and you play music continuously for 2,000 years, you'll go through one petabyte of data. Okay? So, we're talking big, lots of data. In fact, by 2025, it's estimated that we'll be generating across the world 47 zettabytes of data, which is supposedly more bits of data than there are atoms in the universe. If we want to use artificial intelligence, we have to have complete, accurate, longitudinal data sets to work on. So we need to embrace technology and we need to make sure people can use it effectively to make the benefits of all this come to reality. And there is a better way of doing it than this, believe me, so there you have data locked away like crude oil in a barrel. Um, Those data records, the data held in those records is very valuable, but it's locked locked away in a closet somewhere. You can't get at it easily, and we need to change the way we think about that. We need to create learning and knowledge-based organisations at every single level where each individual is able to use the data and information available to them to improve their performance to make better decisions. This is how it works. It's a virtuous cycle, if you like, where the clinician-patient interaction, which is, when you face it, in healthcare, is where we generate all of our data. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from that interaction. We need to collect it, collect it once, aggregate it, and then use it multiple times for direct patient care, for population health, for business planning, and then for research, and when you start to add in things like uh, the Internet of Things, apps and wearables, machine learning, genomics, phenomics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we start to go down the target, uh, targeted medicine or precision medicine or highly personalised medicine route, which is the prize at the end of all this, and is actually the key to sustainability as we deliver healthcare into the future. So that is really where we're going. That is where the information agenda, where the digital transformation agenda is taking us to that precision medicine environment. Now, system sustainability, as I said, is key. And in fact, this is a paradigm that comes from uh, a guy called Eric Bernolson from MIT. And he was a chap who, who coined the term reimagine. Um, the para- productivity paradox of digital transformation occurs in, in any, occurs in banking, airlines, doesn't matter where it is and it's true of healthcare, and he said there are two keys to unlocking it. The first thing is improve the technology. And up until now, we haven't really had the technology that's been enabling us to do this with the complexity of healthcare and the amount of data that we're having to deal with. So improve the technology and then reimagine the work. You don't want to take an old way of working and just make it digital, because guess what? You get an old way of working that's digitised. Doesn't change anything as such. In fact, usually what it does is, is add to the burden of collecting data. We need to change the way we work to align with and take advantage of all the digital technology. Now, a sustainable system, if we look at efficiency, it's it's implicitly reliant on the flow of information, how we can align things and how we can eliminate uh, unintended variation and reduce waste. We'll do that so much better when we have the right information for decision making. And it saves time when we get it right, and that's a very precious resource. So what we need is to actually make sure we capture all the data from the interactions across the system, and we need to do that in a standardised and systematic way so that we can flow that information and join it up. So we can create longitudinal health records for every single patient with every bit of their health journey included in that health record, and then we can really start to see where we can make a difference, where we can target variation, where we can target good practice or not so good practice and close those gaps. This is how we did it in the NHS. This is when I arrived. There was a £4.7 billion initiative to transform the NHS in terms of digital, and it was conceived around those 10 domains, uh, which was a really good paradigm for going to Treasury to say, this is what we need to do, so please give us £4.7 billion. It didn't actually translate, however, into what people did on the ground. It didn't make sense to people pushing people around hospitals on trolleys or to nurses in the ED department or consultants on the ward. So we had to reimagine this uh, and in fact that's exactly what we did. We unlocked the power of the information, We, we, we opened those crude oil barrels and started to analyse it to produce information flows. And essentially what we did was we enabled the system to collect data in a structured and standardised way from wherever it was and however it was collected. We we put the pipes in to enable it to be distributed or shared across the system so it could be used. Encouraged innovative ways of using it, so apps and wearables, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, And then we facilitated analysis of that data so that we could get really good knowledge and information out of it at all levels, population right down to individual uh, patient level. Uh, Simply did it like this, five simple ways of thinking of conceptualising it. The first was the most important, to get that totemically right up front, was engage and empower people in their healthcare care journeys. Find a way of sharing their health information with them so that they could come on the journey with us. That was really important to make that number one. Support clinicians, the people who actually deliver care. Guess what? Make it easier for them to deliver good care. And what are you going to get? Good care. So how could we make it easier for people on the ground to deliver better care? How do we integrate services effectively? Well, one of the best ways is enable information to flow. Manage the system effectively so that we did have an efficient, productive system to work in so we could do all the work and respond to the demand challenges. And then create a platform for the future so that we could bring in the genomics work, so we could use machine learning algorithms create the data sets available for that. And underpinning that was, as Lynn was saying before, make sure that we looked after that data properly. We had robust information governance. We had cyber security in there. We could identify people accurately, etc., etc. So that's how we reimagine those 10 domains into that simple paradigm. And that started to make, ooh, make sense to people uh, on the ground. So where are we now? Well, this is a, I, anybody recognize that? So that was the initial thought process that Frank Geary went through when he was conceptualising the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. So he had an idea of what he wanted it to look like. It was sort of taking shape. It was vague, a little vague, vague but exciting maybe, uh, like all those years ago. Uh, But not quite the the full product. We want to get to the final product, if we ever do get to the final product, which is a spectacular piece of architecture, if any of you have seen it. Uh, and, And we're moving towards that. Creating a learning and knowledge-based system or organisation at every level, right at the cutting edge of digital medicine. Remember, that moves very quickly, so we have to be flexible and agile to take that on. Where each individual uses the data available to them to make better decisions, to drive their performance ever better. Where learning and benefits can be shared across the system and where we can embed system sustainability through the use of that information and data. But let me come back to this. This is a very sobering picture. Because in the NHS, and I don't know what the figures for Australia are like, in the NHS, on an average, eight times a year for the last 20 years or more, someone with a known penicillin allergy is given penicillin, they have an allergic reaction, or a Stevens-Johnson reaction as that's called, and they die, on an average, eight times a year. Now nobody got up out of bed in the morning with the intent to do that. Systems are culpable for that outcome, because what we did as a system, we did not provide the information to that person prescribing that drug or dispensing that drug that they needed to make a better decision at the point of decision making. If they had had that information, if they'd have known that patient was allergic to penicillin, that wouldn't have happened. So in essence, in simple terms, everything we are doing around digital transformation boils down to stopping that happening by providing the right information in the right form to the right person at the right place and the right time to make better decisions. That's pretty much what it all boils down to. Is this a leap of faith? Uh, So that's a pilot climbing into a stealth bomber. You can see the rain shadow outline there. Well, um, you might say it's a leap of faith, and in some ways we are gonna have to make that leap uh, because we don't have evidence here. But I can tell you that it's happening and we need to embrace it and we need to take some of those leaps. Have we got it right? So everybody has a different perspective on digital healthcare. Uh, and a lot of it depends on where you sit, what your experience has been, et etc. Et so when you look at that picture, what do you see? And there they are. So, in terms of a leap of faith, when I started from this, uh, uh, I thought there were 10 kinds of people in the world, uh, and uh, I'll list them for you. Uh, And so what I hope I've done is, is big topic, isn't it, to, to go through all this, but I hope I've shown you a different way of thinking about what we need to do in the future. Uh, I'm convinced that that digital transformation is the only game in town if we really want to change the way we provide healthcare, if we want to provide system sustainability, and if we want to deliver the triple aim. Uh, And I think it aligns well with with what you're going to be discussing over the next few days. So thank you very much.
1: Professor McNeil, thank you so much. That was a fascinating, absolutely fascinating um, uh, address and presentation. I know I have a number of questions, but we have a few minutes for questions. If you do have one, please take to the corridors here and a microphone. I'm going to jump in first, though. Where to start? A lot of the language you used. I do a lot of work in the public sector, um, particularly around leadership and um, a lot of the language you use about disruption, about uh, having the fear to fail, etc., is language we use in the public sector the courage a great deal. To fail. And, and, sorry, the courage to fail.
2: Yeah, the public sector does fear to
3: fail. Well, we're this right. is what I'm going <laughs> to come to.
1: It, but in the end, I, find, I, I do a lot of teaching communications, and I find I, I have to really try hard to convince leaders to be brave because all of what we're talking about here requires leadership. It requires leadership to embrace a, a, a belief yeah, yeah. in the future in the way that you've outlined it. Yeah. How has that happened in your experience? The NHS um, example is fascinating. How important is leadership at the top level?
2: Uh, look, it's uh, it absolutely critical. Uh, the NHS is very fortunate at the moment having Simon Stevens as the, as the chief executive. I mean, he's a visionary and he's very good. But, you know, he's juggling all those balls and is and not... Um, obviously, the political side of things in the NHS is extant. Leadership is absolutely critical and, and it is about... The slide there, which, which I jumped over, it's not about leaders doing stuff. It is about them encouraging uh, what, what the people who work with them, who follow them, do. Uh, I've often said, look, the secret to, to me getting to where I've got to um, all these years is, is to hire the best people you can give them all the resources they need to get on and do a really good job and get out of their way and then take credit for all their hard work. <laughs>
1: um, Sounds like media, really. <laughs> but it is,
2: but it, is about, it is about having trust, you know, trusting people to go out there and do the right thing. Uh, and uh, regulators, people manage their own risk, their own personal risk in so many ways without actually managing the risk, which is what we really need to do, which is the risk of, of what's happening to the system, what's happening to individual people.
1: Yeah. Okay, we've got a few questions uh, lined up here, we'll take yours first.
0: Uh, morning, Paul Miskins is my name, I'm a GP in Harvey Bay, Queensland. For those of you that don't know, that's a lovely place just west of Fraser Island. So, uh, Keith, last time I spoke to you on a clinical level was uh, when you were a thoracic registrar, and I was in my first year of general practice, <clears throat> and you said to me... That was about five years ago, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. He said to me, stick that needle in in that node above the clavicle and you'll get an answer. So uh, we have had a clinical contact in the past. You mentioned good care, and um, as a GP to me, good care is um, about a patient having a good life and a good death, Um, that's that whole picture. And um, I'm I'm, I'm concerned about the data revolution and the data explosion. Because in GP land, one of the things we doctors do do is we protect our patients from useless information. We don't want to, we don't want to feed the worried well, yeah. and having too much uh, too much information about ourselves in the context of having a good life and a good death. The old saying of um, you know ignorance is bliss is is not fallacious. Sometimes we do have too much information about ourselves in the world. So the other. I just wanted you to comment, perhaps, on that. One of the, the second two downsides. One is the sort of ignorance is bliss phenomenon, and two, with all this data, how are we going to protect it from the greedy, the greedy element in our world? The mercenaries are going to use data for either profit or gain, rather than just good outcomes.
2: Yeah, look, let me let me deal with the second question first. I, look, there are systems that we, and, and processes, and this is where legislation actually does play a really valuable role in determining what we do with information governance. The the, rea- the reality, however, is, is if we aggregate data, then it's always going to be available for someone to misuse. But, you know, in, in the greater scheme of things, the, the good use of data absolutely overwhelms anything that anybody's going to do in a miscreant way, and again, like we do clinically all the time it's a relative risk it's a risk balance there's no there's no absence of risk here it's about what is least risky and i don't know anybody who's ever died of of breach of privacy from their information but i know a hell of a lot of people who have died because information hasn't been available when they've needed it so that's how i go i look at it in terms of your first question um yeah you do we ever get the balance right for individuals I, i mean maybe one of the things about precision medicine is that we'll be able to tell when someone comes in, we're about to read their mind. I've often sat down and said, oh, would you like too much or too little information today? Because you never get the balance right. But I think on the whole that giving people, being transparent, giving people the opportunity, and in fact for us, just having systems that steer people in the right direction to trusted sources of information, as we did with Google in the NHS, uh, is, is the way forward. Make sure people aren't subjected to some of the lunatics out there, but make sure they go to trusted sources. Thank you.
1: You really are an optimist, which is wonderful. The last question here.
3: Thank you. Hi, my name is Jill Thistlethwaite. I'm a medical advisor at NPS, a GP, and a medical educator, and a survivor of the NHS. Um, happy 70 years. Um, my question is um, so you talked about the triple aim, and in America, they're also talking about the quadruple aim, where the fourth aim is to enhance the health of the actual health professionals. And we're living in a time now where there's a lot of burnout and stress among health professionals. um, And that's particularly so in NHS England, as I'm sure you know. Um, And one of the things that's been talked about in terms of health professional health is that we need to enhance individuals' resilience within the health system, um, which is basically blaming individuals for not being resilient. And I think it's very interesting around talking about resilience of systems rather than individual resilience. So I'm just wondering what all the information that you've talked about is actually going to do to help people on the job reduce their burnout.
2: Well, I think I mean that's a case in point because the whole point about providing good information to people is that it makes their job easier, more effective, they get they get more value out of it. And in fact, you know we know just just running electronic health records so I implemented a record in Cambridge Uh, And we know that for the first time in living memory, all of the nurses on the paediatric ward got away at the end of their shift consistently uh, because we had electronic exchange of information and they didn't have to sit back with bits of paper. So just things like that uh, that's, a, that's a simple example, but actually availability of the right information makes decision-making better. We, we reduce variation, we reduce waste, we, we get things done in the right place at the right time and that starts to embed, take out all of that waste and that's what builds resilience into individuals. So when are we going to have a
3: personalised universal health record that's patient accessible in Australia? <coughs> Five years. <laughs> five years. Five years. Oh, sorry. God, I'm going to have to wait five years. <laughs> five,
2: three years in Queensland.
1: <laughs> okay. Last question. We'll have to keep it brief, and that's the end of this, uh, this session. Okay.
2: Uh, so my name is Chris McMaster. I'm a clinical pharmacology registrar at Austin Health, Victoria. love the talk. Um, my question was: so you focused on structured data, which I think is fantastic, but. In many industries, there's a, there's a turn away from
3: structured data to unstructured data with things like data lakes and Amazon uh, web services. And what do you think the role is of unstructured data in the future in healthcare?
2: Oh, yeah, look, um, I, I don't think we'll ever capture everything in structured data, but wherever we can, uh, the more structured it can be in, in the right setting, the easier it is to aggregate, so then we can focus things. I mean, you'll know things like natural languaging process where, where we can take unstructured data and make sense out of it. But if we can, if there is a sensible way of doing it in a structured way, it just means it makes it so much cheaper and so much easier, why wouldn't we do that? But you're absolutely right. We will always have some need to be able to interrogate unstructured data, but we want to minimise that so we can maximise the value.
1: Great. Thank you. Just before you go, I'm going to um, hit you with one last question and my prerogative as EMC. I'm the director of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra, the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis. I'll get that out of the way and I won't say it again today. I bring a gender lens to everything I do, particularly to panel discussions. There were only reference to women in your talk was, uh, well, reference on a vase or a jar, or it was a dolphin, I'm not quite sure. In fact, I only saw dolphins. They were, um, they
2: were... They were all female dolphins. <laughs>
1: It, it is disappointing, though, that the the, the references, historical references, uh, are, are all male. Is that something you're conscious of?
2: Am I conscious of it? Um, that women
1: seem to be absent from the, the discussion of discovery.
2: It, it, look, if you go back, uh, I mean, I, sh- I should have, I guess, I do have, I did have a slide that I took out that had Marie Curie up there.
1: I was waiting in, for that. Yeah. In
2: discovery of uh, of uh, of X-ray technology, of course. Um, yeah, if you go back in history, I mean, I can't reinvent history. It is what it is, but. You know There are many great examples of, of where women have contributed very significantly. And we
1: need to highlight to them all, it. don't we? We
2: need to highlight them all, but yeah, okay, good point, thanks.
1: I'll leave you with that.
2: I'll take, I'll take, uh, I'll put Marie back in.
1: Thank you. Professor McNeil. thank you very much.